0: Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in his plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. It's good to be here. It's good to be in the presence of the Lord. It's good to be ready for his word. You guys hungry? Yes, for the word. Good, good. Uh, If you have your Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 14 if you're here tonight and you don't have a Bible, but you want to follow along with us, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they'll drop a Bible off to you so that you can follow along with us tonight in our study as we continue uh, following the life of the Apostle Paul. Let's, uh, let's pray. Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll get into uh, the Word tonight. Father, we thank you again, Lord. We know that you're here. We know that you've already heard us, but Lord, as we turn our attention um, From our praise to now your truth and to hear your voice, we ask, Lord, that our hearts would be able and ready to receive all that you want to speak to us, Lord. So make us sensitive, Father, to those things, not only that we need to learn, but to that uh, word of direction or indication or help that you want to give to us, Lord. That we might know you more uh, closely, that we might follow your path more um, accurately, Lord, and that we might be the kind of people, Lord, that reflect you rightly in this world. So would you help us now in that, in your word, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're in Acts 14. Um, I I think that we... Live in probably the freest society that the world has ever known in human history. When you think about it, um, we live in a a free country, a free land, we have a free um, county, we live in a free place, Uh, we have freedom to make choices for ourselves, we get to, uh, we have free speech, free uh, freedom to choose our careers, our spouses, our futures, you know. Uh, We know freedom. Um, but even with all the freedom that we really enjoy, we, we, we still sometimes feel this constraint as though sometimes maybe uh, we're not that free. We have this overwhelming sense that we're not free, you know, um, and that can happen to us. And what I want to talk to you about tonight is in this chapter through the Apostle Paul, I want to show you a man who knew freedom on a whole nother level, a different kind of freedom than what can be had in this world. And though our experience is not the same as his because his calling was different than ours, uh, yet the, the testimony of the way that he lived life and the way that he saw life Uh, is a reflection of what God wants to do for each one of us. You know, so uh, some incredible things as we get into chapter 14 tonight, we're going to see an amazing man who handles things uh, really in in quite an amazing way. And so if we could read just the first three verses as we get ready and get into it, it says this, it says, It came to pass in Iconium that they, that is um, Paul and Barnabas, these two apostles, missionaries, They went both together into the synagogue of the Jews, and so spake that a great multitude, both of the Jews and also of the Greeks, that is the Gentiles that were there, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil-affected against the brethren. They poisoned them, they turned uh, their their affection against them, tarnished their reputation, And so it says a long time, therefore, abode they or they stayed there speaking boldly in the Lord, who the Lord gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Okay, so uh, kind of as a reminder of of the the continuity of what's going on, we have just here in this um, first three verses, we have uh, a reminder of Paul's uh, mission And then we get a glimpse of the mountain that is uh, in front of him withstanding him. And then we also get to see his mindset and the way that he uh, approached uh, the challenges that were there. His mission, uh, of course, is that of uh, spreading the gospel to unreached territories. And just kind of as a reminder and um, just some context for us is to realize that this was not a job for him. This isn't something that like where he uh, went to school and got a degree and then he applied to a missions board and, um, you know, and they granted him a salary and, you know, and this is kind of like, well, he's got to report back. I mean, this is his life. And he is doing this of his own free will. And what we're going to find, even as we follow him further, is that he is self-funded. Like he's a guy who uh, picked up a trade and he was going to provide for himself. And he didn't want anyone at any time to ever be able to say about him that he was in it for the money or that he was under the constraint of, of some organization that was supporting him or something. That he was doing this because there was a deep sense of calling that was within him. Something that was given to him from God. It was a deep drive response to what Jesus had done in his life. And Jesus had so gotten a hold of this man, Paul, and transformed him in such a a radical and profound and deep way that that it completely changed him. And, And now he wanted to spend his life spreading this message and giving to other people what God had given to him, knowing that he had freely received it. And so now he had the privilege of freely giving it away. And it was working. So as he's traveling now, from uh, region to region and and city to city and place to place, and he's just preaching the same message that transformed him, he is now seeing lives changed. People are being influenced because of what he is giving to them based upon what had been given to him. That's his mission. It's what he's doing, and he's doing it because he's called to do it. Now, whenever you influence people, whenever you are uh, swaying someone's belief patterns, or you are uh, influencing them in such a way that it's changing the way they live then that is going to have certain consequences because when someone is influenced in a way that their thinking is changed then you are upsetting the status quo of the of what's going on around those people okay especially when what you are doing is changing people and setting them free from certain controls that have been established over their life. And that's going to bother people. And that's what's happening now as Paul comes into this specific region as it has happened in the others and as it will happen everywhere that he goes. That as Jews and Greeks believe the message that Paul is preaching, it is changing their mindset and they are becoming set free from the things that had previously controlled them. Now in this case, it would be the religious constraints of the religious rulers and the religious systems that were governing and dictating what these people were doing and more importantly, their presence and the influence that they were having over these people. And so they know that unless we resist the message that Paul is preaching, then we will completely lose our grasp on the people that are giving their, their, their allegiance to us, and so we've got to stop this whole thing, hence the mountain of resistance that is now in front of Paul. It says that the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, and it says that they made their minds evil against the apostles, against Paul and Barnabas, So that it hindered their influence in the lives of their people. What they did is that they sowed prejudice before there could be an influential interaction. So before Paul and Barnabas could bring the message, they had already given the context or the pretext in the minds of these people that they shouldn't listen to what Paul and Barnabas are saying because there's something wrong with their message. Now, we have a word for what they were doing in the modern context that is not used here in the Bible. The word is called gossip. Have you ever heard that word before? Gossip. It's to make someone's mind evil about someone before you really know what they're actually about. In in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28, I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. It says this. It says, A troublemaker plants seeds of strife, and a gossip separates the best of friends. Gossip does one thing. It separates. Right, now, I know it's early in the message, but can I preach for just a minute about something? Okay? Gossip is probably the most acidic force in all of human relationships. And and for some reason, we love gossip. We have a whole industry in our country that revolves around gossip. We love hearing bad things about other people. What is it about us that is so attractive to gossip? In Christian circles, we spiritualize it. And we say, oh, oh, I I think we really need to pray for uh, this brother, or we need to pray about the situation, or we come in, and we're very pious, and we come in with this like uh, um, cloak of empathy, and we're like, you know, I'm really concerned about something, and I really want to bear a burden with you. You know, and all we're really doing is spiritualizing gossip, okay? Here's the thing. If a person is not in the room, they shouldn't be in the conversation, That's the end of the story. Because the reality is, is that if someone is talking to you about someone else, then there's no doubt that they will talk about you to someone else. It's just going to happen in a matter of time. And the problem with all of that is that reputation travels faster than reality. All right? So I've had people come to me and tell me things about people, all right? And it has painted them in a certain light and it has skewed or influenced my perspective or my perspective or thinking about someone before I've ever had a chance to know what they're all about or if any of those things are actually true. And then I've had the experience of coming to interact with those same people that I heard something about And coming to the conclusion over time that the things that I heard were not accurate or an accurate description of that person's character or their ways or what it is that's about them. And and then I have to kind of rewire my thinking towards that person. But what ultimately ends up happening is that now I question the person who told me those things. They have now become tainted because when you gossip in the end, it just exposes you. And gossip seats into our souls a negative posture towards other people. That's what it does. And if you want friendships, if you want to do the most good, if you want healthy relationships, then speak well of other people. That's what we're called to do. Because when you speak well of other people, then you're the kind of person that can be trusted with other people's lives. And it helps, it brings healing, it brings depth. You know, um... This happened twice within a week is uh, that, that somebody came to me and they, they, um, they were kind of giving me an update on something that they told my wife and I had no idea what it was. And so they were giving me an update and I was kind of looking at them like, like, oh no, I did it again. Like where you told me something and then I immediately forgot what it was and there's this deep thing that I'm supposed to already have been praying about and I don't even remember having a conversation about it. And so they, they said, oh, well, I told your wife. And I said, oh, well, she didn't tell me. You told her. You didn't tell me. And then in that same exact week, there was someone who did the same thing to her. They gave her an update, and she said, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and they said, well, we told Nick. And, and they just assumed that we just talk about everybody and talk about everything at home. We don't. Like, I don't know if that's just, like, strange, but we literally don't talk about people in our house, in that way. If you tell me something, you told me something. If you want my wife to know, tell my wife. If you, want, if you want me to know, tell me. That's the way it's supposed to be, okay? If somebody tells you something or opens up their life to you, then just leave it right there because gossip is poisonous. Let's be bigger than that as a body of Christ. Let's not be a people that talk about other people when they're not in the room. If they're not in the room, they don't belong in the conversation, okay? That's what happened to Paul and Barnabas here. They have the most powerful message that a person could ever hear. They could have the most severe impact on a life and change them forever. And before they ever have a chance to get in front of the person, they've already been tainted so that the shield is up and they won't listen to what the message is. That is a damaging thing to be able to do in a situation. Well, Paul's mindset concerning this, knowing that it's happening, it tells us in verse 3, it tells us how to respond when you are on the victim end of gossip. It says that for a long time he abode in that place, speaking boldly in the Lord. So his defense against the things that were being spoken of him Is not to run away from it, but rather to just continue in his character, not defending himself, but being integral in who he is. And you know what happened? It says that God confirmed the word with signs and wonders. Meaning this, is that he just stayed true to what he truly was. And in time, okay, letting time go, integrity triumphs over gossip in time. Because God backed him up. And that's what happened. So gossip doesn't defeat Paul, but it does divide the city. Watch what happens in verse 4. It says, but the multitude of the city was divided. You see how damaging gossip is? And part held with the Jews and part held with the apostles. So now you have this division, this divide, this issue that has come up within this city. And watch what happens in verse 5. And this is what always happens when there's division. It says, and when there was an assault made, both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them, they were aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe. You know, okay. So here's, let's bring King James into uh, the modern language for just a minute, okay? There is now a division where part of the people are with the Jews And part of the people are with the apostles. And the problem with division is that once there is division over an issue, then slowly cause is shifted. And what I mean by that is that what begins is that the conflict between the two sides begins to eclipse the cause. And and people are now evaluated and defined by what they believe and what side they're on rather than why they believe for what side they're on. The cause is shifted. There's no greater example of this than the politics in the United States of America. I mean, you think about the divide that's in our nation. And really, it's not even about what the party stands for. It's just simply labeling people based upon which side they're on. And it's all about what they, they believe rather than why. What's the even reason? So over time, the good that either side would do is swallowed up by the battle that exists because of the division. And so because of the divide that took place in this city of Iconium, it says that a campaign is launched to use them despitefully and so that ultimately they might be destroyed. That's what what it means in verse 5 when it says that an assault was made. A campaign was strategized behind closed doors to use them despitefully so that ultimately they might be destroyed. What does it mean to use them despitefully? It means that they wanted to find a way to use their message against them so that it could be completely upended. A campaign to use them despitefully, to silence them, and make them of no effect. This would never, ever happen at any other time in history than just right here, in this text right here. That would never happen. Campaign to silence the voices. For about 2,000 years, a period of time ending about 100, maybe not even quite 100 years ago, one of the most common medical treatments for ailing people and diseases was the thing, maybe you've never even heard of it, called bloodletting. The concept that If there's something wrong with you, it's because your body fluids are out of balance and there's an issue with your blood. And so the best thing you can do is drain your blood so that you can drain the disease and the ailments out of you. And this was the most common, most scientifically accepted form of treatment, therapy, and healing for almost 2,000 years. I looked it up on uh, Wikipedia Just to understand it a little bit more, and I just want to read this, just a couple sentences. That bloodletting is the withdrawal of blood from a patient to prevent or cure illness and disease. It was based on an ancient system of medicine in which blood and other bodily fluids were regarded as humors that had to remain in proper balance to maintain health. It is claimed to have been the most common medical practice performed by surgeons from antiquity until the late 19th century, a span of over 2,000 years. The practice has now been abandoned by modern style medicine for all except a few very specific medical conditions. And in the overwhelming majority of cases, the historical use of bloodletting was harmful to patients. Okay, now, why do I bring that up in this instance? All right, because for 2,000 years, bloodletting was the scientifically approved and proven way to treat and cure patients. Now, if you were a person who questioned the practice of bloodletting and you said, wait, blood is good. The Bible says the life is in the blood. White blood cells are in the blood. There's actually science that shows that blood is good. You don't want to drain blood out of people. You're draining life out of people. Well, if you were a person that stood to gain From the practice of bloodletting all you have to do is brand people that are against bloodletting as being anti-science all you have to do is say well they're anti-science they don't believe in science the science shows historically the track record is that this is the proper way to do it those people are anti-science Listen, nobody wants to be anti-science so when you're branded and labeled through the campaign being despitefully used because you, you, you question it, now you are anti-science. So now I'm either going to shut my mouth or I'm going to leave the argument at the table. And I have been effectively put down. I'm going to be swayed or I'm going to be silent. Okay, Now once the narrative of those that launch the campaign is accepted by the majority, then those who don't go along can then be stoned. That's, that's the strategy of those here in the text. We don't stone people in these days. We just put them in uh, re-education camps and things of that nature, you know, and that whole thing. Now, let me ask you a question. What do you do, because we all have felt this in, in some way uh, or, or whatever, what do you do when you're being despitefully used? What do you do when you're being called Uh, anti-science because you ask questions? What do you do when you are being called pro-death and pro-war because you believe in the right to bear arms? What do you do when you are called racist because you believe in free speech? What do you do when you are despitefully used by those that seek to leverage a position to prop themselves up or to propagate an agenda? What do you do? What did Jesus say when someone despitefully uses you? It's Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse I forgot what verse I'm starting in. Could you put it up on the screen? Forty, 43 He said, "You have heard that it has been said,You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them which curse you, and do good to them that hate you and watch this and." Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus tells us what to do with those that despitefully use us. He says, Pray for those which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? That you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. There are There's one command with two reasons. He says, you are to pray for people that are operating and acting in this way. You say, why is it that I would pray for them? Number one is so that you can see them clearly and still love them even though they are acting evilly. Jesus says, that's what my father does. He shows kindness and he shows hope for even the people that are evil as well as he does for those that are good. And and when you pray for someone, it gives you the ability to see them through eternal eyes. It gives you the ability to have a softened heart towards someone that is not soft towards you. It gives you the ability to look at a person that completely is in a different wavelength than you and to genuinely not have a problem with them, even though they might have a problem with you. Now, I know that during this past two years that we have just gone through, many of the things that were done were, if not specifically, they were inclusively targeted at Christians and churches because we gather, because there is gatherings and whatnot. And so many times laws and mandates were enacted on Saturday nights, even though they were issued on Wednesday nights. You know, why are you putting in and why, if it's, a, if it's emergency, put it into effect now, three days before. Why are you waiting till Saturday night? They, because Sunday morning, What's going to happen? You know, and, and maybe not so much here where we experienced it, but in other places of the country, when churches did gather the following Sunday morning, there were people there from health departments and from other agencies, whatever, with cameras ready to report that people were not following the laws and mandates that were put in place. Now, here's the reality, is that those people that did that, they did that because they have something against churches. But here's what they need to know. And it's your and my responsibility to let them know it is that even though they have a problem with us, we don't have a problem with them. Okay. They are people without Jesus and we want them to know Jesus and to know the freedom that comes from Jesus so that they also can be saved. But if we are in arms and battling against something, then we lose perspective of what the real battle actually is. Because the real battle isn't about the laws and mandates. The real battle is for souls in eternity. And so when we pray for those that are despitefully using us, it gives us the right perspective to see them for what they really are. They're lost souls in need of a savior for whom Jesus died and that God's heart towards them is kindness to give them sun and rain, just like he would for you. He'll provide equally for all. That's the heart of God. So when you pray for them, it gives you the perspective to see them clearly. The other reason why we are to pray for those that despitefully use us is so that our cause is not shifted and we become more about our position than what is really our purpose. Because when you get drawn into the battle over sides Then you lose perspective on what really matters and your cause can easily be shifted. Notice what Paul does when he sees that there's a division and a schism concerning Jew versus Gentile, gospel versus Moses. What does he do? Verse six. It says that when they were aware of it, they fled unto Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region that lies round about. What he did is that he withdrew from the debate. He asked himself the question. He said, is this my battle? And he said, I am no longer going to be able to fulfill what I have been called to do in this environment. And so I'm not going to be caught up in it. I'm going to withdraw myself from it. Now, when, when this whole, again, and I hate to talk about it because it's beaten to death, but when this whole thing started, this whole pandemic a couple of years ago, I could see, and I, and I know most of you could see too, that it was being leveraged and it was being used by certain powers to erode freedoms from people. That was something that we could see. That was, uh, they weren't even really trying to hide it. There was an erosion of freedom. Now, I like freedom. Do you like Freedom. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think it's worth fighting for. It is deeply embedded in the human spirit that we were made to be free. That's something that was put placed within us from God. And in my heart, I'm ready to fight for freedom. That's something that has happened throughout world history is that there, we, we rise up when our freedom is being challenged. But, but one of the things that many of us began to realize at a certain point as we were watching this happen is that the freedom that we would be fighting for was a freedom that's been given to us by man. Specifically, it's a freedom that is guaranteed to us by the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It's a man freedom. It's a freedom that was given to us, okay? However, I am a follower of Jesus, okay? I'm not a follower of Jesus by position, but on purpose, Meaning that it's not just like, well, okay, well, this is what I check on the questionnaire, that I am a Christian, therefore I am a follower. No, no, no. I'm a follower of Jesus because of what Jesus did in my life. Because of who Jesus is and, and what he continually is doing in teaching me and growing me and helping me. And what I hear Jesus tell me is he says that if you want to be my disciple, he says, then continue in my word And he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you what? Free. Free. Okay? Okay. So what Jesus is saying is that when you follow me, I am giving you a freedom, not that comes from man, but I am giving you a freedom that comes from God. Now, which one's higher? The freedom that comes from man or the freedom that comes from God? Okay, listen, there is a higher freedom that has been given to me from God that even if the freedom that has been given to me from man is taken away, no one can take away from me the freedom that's been given to me from God. And if I get distracted to fight for something I can't keep, then I cease to identify with what I cannot lose. And when you accept a lesser freedom as your liberty, you can actually become imprisoned by your freedom. And Saul, Paul, saw the danger of being subverted by this division, this argument, this battle in Iconium over who was going to be right. And what I see today is I see many Christians being despitefully used by campaigns of men to fight causes whose outcomes don't really matter in the long run. Well, the fight in Iconium was who was going to have the upper hand, who's going to have the majority religiously, politically, and Paul withdrew. He said, this is not my fight. I cannot fight that fight and plant churches and grow Christians. And I think we need to ask ourselves, what fight are we called to fight? What's the battle and what's the war? Sometimes we have to say, I can't fight that fight and raise my family. I can't fight that fight and stay human and look at people completely and with love and and wholesomely. I can't fight that fight and continue to pursue what God has called me to do with my life that is different from that. And Paul said, I will not be bound by the battle at the expense of winning the war. It says that there they preach the gospel in the regions of Lystra and Derby. So Paul says, my life is going to be to set people free in the highest freedom. And I'm going to make that my cause because it's the freedom that matters. Now watch what happens in Lystra in verse 8. It says that there sat a certain man at Lystra, having or, uh, impotent in his feet and being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. And the same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed. Paul said with a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And it says that he leaped and walked. Okay, so he goes to Lystra He fulfills what he knows matters, and he preaches the gospel in a new place. And we're told here in this little text that there was a man who was there crippled from birth in his feet, and that because of that crippling, he had never walked. He was born with this disability that kept him from being productive in his life. And God allowed, after the preaching of the gospel, He allowed this man to experience what the Bible calls a sign or a sign in wonder. As we've seen in this chapter uh, once, we see it here, we'll see it listed again. And the sign is that this man who had been crippled, impotent, disabled in an area of his life from the time that he was born, now has faith to be healed and he's called to rise up and that healing actually comes. Okay, now, when we talk about signs and wonders, usually we get excited. And oftentimes, us Christians, we, we have this thing where we are attracted to the miraculous. That if we hear about a, a particular sign being done, we get excited. If we hear about a ministry where signs are legitimately being done, we are gravitated, we're curious, we're interested because it's not the normal thing. It's, it's different. But what is a sign? A sign is something that points to something. A sign is not the destination. The sign is an indication towards something else. Now, what is the something else that the sign is pointing to here in this instance? It's the word that was preached by the Apostle Paul. See, it was the word that he was giving out, the gospel that he was preaching, that did something in the heart of this man that provoked faith in him, that he didn't have to stay in the condition that everyone else said was final in his life. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that every single one of us in some area of our life were born crippled. Now, maybe it wasn't literally your feet where you can't walk. okay? But I know for me, there are some serious, serious disabilities that I carried into this world that I thought could never change within me. That they would be with me for the, to, to the day I die. A crippling sense of male loneliness uh, laziness is the word just being uh, that 's just me i 'm just a lazy person i 'm stuck there that 's what it is or, or I have a destructive lack of empathy. I just have no concept of anybody else I'm just, I have every every potential of being a major narcissist not caring about another soul, just totally consumed with myself, or I have this terribly destructive propensity towards an addictive personality. Just maybe not in things that trip up other people, but in the things that trip up me, man, I get stuck so easily and it's just crippling and it's just the way I am and it's in me and it's like a death sentence and it's gonna keep me from ever being something, doing something or getting beyond the limitations that I sense in my life right now. This man, it was literal in his feet, but it was a sign, It was a figure. It was speaking of something. All of us have it. And the powerful thing is that when he heard the word of the gospel preached, that a God that can raise a man from the dead, that a God with whom there is no limitations, a God who did not withhold his own son, but freely delivered him up for the forgiveness of sins, and who now promises that he can do all things, and he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness. And as this man hears that message about a God who's more powerful than his condition, something resurrects inside of him. There's a hope that begins to grow and stir up as he hears that maybe, just maybe, this God loves me enough that he can heal what every man has said will be with me until the day I die. And as hope rises in him, and Paul, who's preaching, sees the hope rising in this man's faith, it says that Paul perceived that he had faith to be healed, that he believed that in some way, through the wisdom and the freedom of God, he could be healed from this disease. Paul looks at the man and he tells him to rise up. And here's the amazing thing: is that the man didn't say, "I can't." The man said, "You don't understand." Or you're mocking my affliction and my condition. But the man said, if this is true, and if this God is that powerful, and if there is nothing that can stand in his way, then I will at least try right now to walk in this way that I have never been able to walk before. Do you see the action associated with the faith of this man? He believed that it could be done, but he still had to do it. You may have a crippling fear of confrontation, and you say, "Could that ever be changed?" Because it has cost me so incredibly much in my life. It has caused me to just accept people walking all over me. Yes, it can be healed, absolutely, because the righteous are as bold as a lion. The scriptures tell us. Who did that? Did someone literally just growl? (Laughter) No, you're engaged. I appreciate it. You know, we're supposed to be communicating, right? Not just hearing. So do it. So you stand up for yourself. So you speak and you see that sometimes it's in the going that the healing actually comes. Because whether it's laziness or whether it's an addiction or whether it's just some weird predisposition in the mind. God says that he makes us completely whole. It's the Holy Spirit. And when he comes into the life, he redeems and restores all of the life. And it may not be in a moment. It may not be in an instant. It may not be like the miraculous sign that God is doing here to speak to others about the validity of the message. But in his way and in his time, as we walk in what he says, we experience that he is able to redeem what was long crippled in our lives. It's what he does. It's what he did. It's the sign that's done here. Now watch, watch the uh, response of the people that see this done in verse 11. One of the most powerful things that happened in, in uh, the book of Acts. It says that when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And they called Barnabas Jupiter, And Paul, Mercurius, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was brought uh, before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they tore their clothes and ran in among the people crying out and saying, sirs, why do ye these things? we also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. So, so here's, here, here's the scene, right? This man is healed at the end of Paul's sermon. And because of the healing, the response of the city is that they think that Barnabas and Paul are gods that have come to them in human flesh, even assigning them names of Roman deities that they projected upon Paul and Barnabas based on their appearance and based upon their actions. And, and so quick were they and ready to do this, that Paul and Barnabas go into the crowd. They, they have to tear their clothes and say, no, stop, this is wrong. No, we're not gods. We're just men. And barely, barely through all of that, were they able to stop them from offering offerings to Paul and Barnabas in this, uh, this whole thing. What, what an amazing thing that, that happens here in this whole thing. Gods. What is it in human beings that we are both looking for a savior and trying to be one, right? Isn't, I mean, isn't it crazy that like when, when there's someone who we think can really help us in our condition, how quick we are to like elevate them and deify them and make them something. And and when it happens that we actually have that hero moment where we can help someone, we're so quick to say, yeah, I'm your guy. Like I could do it. I can, I'm, I'm the one. God, raised me up for this moment. We are looking for a savior and we want to be one. We call them heroes, really, in, in the, the modern era. But there's something in us. Now, they call Barnabas Jupiter, who was the god of sky and thunder, and he was the king of the Roman gods. Barnabas, probably older than Saul at this point. And he just looked like the, the more mature one. And then they give Paul the name Mercurius. Mercurius was the god of financial gain, commerce, eloquence, messages, communication, and luck. That was, that was who uh, Mercurius was. And they look at Barnabas and they say, ah, Jupiter. They look at Paul and they go, ah, Mercurius. Because that's what they most look like. Now, listen to what's happening here. Think about what's happening here. Is that these people are projecting an image upon these men that is not real. They're projecting attributes of gods they like, things they need, upon someone they perceive to be more powerful than they are. And that is an extremely dangerous thing for the individual that would be Paul and Barnabas in this instance. Because if they for one moment are tempted to grab a hold of this attention and say, let's leverage this. Let's use our influence here in this city in this way to get our message across. Now what they've done is they've put themselves in a position where they have to live up to the image that's been projected upon them for everyone all the time. And that is an extremely hard, probably impossible thing to do. Anyone who has ever tried to grab a hold of an image that is not their true self and live that out for any length of time knows how extremely difficult that is and how impossible it actually is. It's dangerous because no one can assume or maintain a glorified uh, identity. And, And here's what happens. Here's why that's so dangerous. Because once you don't live up to the image that someone else has painted you in or that you have embraced for yourself, once you don't live up to it, now they despise you. They hate you because you lied to them even though they're the ones that projected the image upon you. You deceiver, you evil, wretched human being. You let me think that you were my God. And I find out that you are just, you wicked, evil, human. I've been there. I've, at pastors, it happens to us. People think that, and then they find out. And then people that, you know, sometimes people come uh, and they'll say, thank you so much. You've changed my life. And I just go, oh God, Please help me because this compliment is going to hurt so bad once they see that I'm just human like everyone else because it's just what happens it's human nature okay now once you fail they despise you for not living up to the image that they projected on you this actually happens to parents by the way okay because what happens when our kids are little well, you're God right when you're when your kids are like five and you're like you have all the answers and you give them everything that you they need you're God. Everything that you say, they're like, okay, Dad, I love you. You're the best thing that ever happened. And we're singing songs and all the thing. Then they become teenagers. And, and once they become teenagers, they, 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 something happens. They wake up and they go, wait a minute, wait wait, minute. When you put me to bed when I was a kid, you did not care how much sleep I got. You just wanted to stay up with mom and watch movies and eat ice cream. And you didn't want us to mess that up because you wanted to watch movies that were not appropriate for us. And they begin to realize, and then they go, you evil, wretched human being. You let me think that you were God. And now, no, no, no. You projected that on me. I was just being nice. I was doing the best I could. This is leadership. This is what happens. Be careful when it is. All right. You weren't looking out for me. You were just trying to control me. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? And here's the wisdom. And if you can grab this, you will be free. Listen, in verse 14 through 18, it tells us that they ran in among the people, they tore their clothes. That is not incidental. That is not like just like a we don't know what to do. What do you do? Rip your clothes, you know, show them your packs. Like, you know, like what? Like, why do they do this? Here's why. Okay. Because in the Bible, clothing is a symbol of covering. It is what is seen. It's the presentation. It is biblical. You have to wear clothing. God, the first thing God did after the falls, he says, you guys got to wear clothes now. Don't let anybody see that. That's not going to be good for you. Okay, hide that. Okay, and I mean, before they were naked and unashamed, right? Everything was there. And then it was like, no, cover that up. And clothing is, clothing is necessary. We don't show everything that we are. Nakedness in the Bible is vulnerability, Nakedness is letting people see what you are underneath the covering. And in that, there is some amazing wisdom and freedom that is being exercised by Paul and Barnabas in this. Because what they are saying is no, 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 no. I might have nice pecs, but look at my flabs. All right. I am not what you think I am. It is vulnerability and quickly. Quickly bringing yourself down off of the pedestal that someone else wants to put you on. That is where the safety is, okay? No, 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 listen, I am glad you're happy with my work, but I'm in it for the money, okay? Let me just tear my clothes a little bit here and not let you think that I'm something that I'm not. Let's get it all out there. I am not, I am not a sincerely concentrated, relational, sensitive Male. I like the way you look. That's why I'm acting this way. I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to tear off the facade. I'm not going to let you think that I'm something that I'm not because it's dangerous, it's dangerous when we do that, when we, we set ourselves or allow ourselves to be put up on a pedestal in that. You're at a job interview, and you show us how much knowledge that you have about this industry and this company, and the interviewer looks at you and says, you're just the type of person I'm looking for. You are so informed about everything that we're about and what we're doing, and you say, no, 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 no. I Googled it, because I had an interview. I Googled it. I, didn't, I know nothing, I know nothing. Get off the pedestal. You get the idea? They understood. Now watch, uh, watch, um, watch what happens, all right? <laughs> in verse 19, it's the third uh, danger uh, of um, standing on this pedestal of being a god. Watch what happens in verse 19 here. It says, watch this. You're going to be amazed by it. It says, and there came from there certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people. Watch this. And having stoned Mercurius, they drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. Not only is he as honest as he can be about his humanity, that I am not God. And he comes down off the pedestal. Now, these people, when the gossipers come and they say, do you know who that guy is? They go, what? We thought we were going to kill him, kill him kill him. Just get him over here and throw rocks on him until he's dead. Listen, why don't you want people to think more highly of you than you are? Because this is what's in people. Because one minute they will love you, they will praise you, they will elevate you, they will write articles about how wonderful, they will call you the goat, the greatest of all time. And then the next minute they will throw rocks at your head and sneer at you and hope you die. That's humanity. And if you put your trust in people, or if you give your service for people, and that's your motive, your reason, watch out. Duck. But when you're free from that, all right, when you're free from that truth, watch what happens. Look at what happens in verse 20. It says, How be it, verse 20, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and he came into the city. And the next day, He departed with Barnabas to Derbe, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and then to Iconium and Deanna. You know what he does? He's just been stoned and left for dead. You know what he doing? He stands up, he dusts himself off, and he goes back into the city. The same city that just stoned him and left him for dead and, and threw him out. He goes, no, I'm not done here. There's something else that God wants me to do. Who does that? Who does that? See, this is next level freedom. This is a man who's truly free. He's not doing this for any reason other than that he loves God and he loves people and he's gonna, not going to let them knock him down in the middle of it. See, if, if we talk about being free by the truth, being freed in the truth, and when you can grasp this level of freedom in your soul, even just what's here, this whole thing about like, I'm not, I don't do what I do for people. I'm not doing it to be praised. I don't, I don't want to elevate anybody and I don't want to be elevated. I just want Jesus to be at the epicenter of my life, my motivation for everything I do. And that, that just, let that drive me, Lord, every day that I keep my eyes on you, you're the reason. If you can grasp that and hold on to it, you will be so set free from any sense of people pleasing, of man worship, of a savior complex, You'll just be free, and it makes you free to be effective and to do good. You can be competitive because you want to be the best version of yourself without grief of someone else being better than you at what you do. You can love people and give yourself to them without a need for them to thank you or even appreciate it or even receive it. You can be rejected by people and you can still love them. That's what Paul does. He goes right back into the city and then back through. Uh, now you could read the rest of the chapter. Worship team, you can come. We, uh, we are out of time. We can't finish the rest of this chapter. Um, we will go through it uh, in uh, our future studies. But what Paul does now is he just goes, he goes back through all of the cities that he has visited already on his way back. It's time for them to go home. The first missionary journey is complete. And so they go back to Lystra, back through Iconium, back through uh, you know, the, the different cities in Pisidia and all that stuff on their way back. And, and Paul has one message when he goes there. His one message is this. He says, listen, we must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. That We must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. You say, why did Paul preach that? Because Paul has just been stoned and left for dead. And his body is the illustration of his sermon. He walks in to the room that he had been in, in Iconium, and they see him there. And they go, what on earth happened to you? What are you doing here? You should be in a hospital somewhere. You're still practically bleeding from the rocks that were thrown on you. He was, he was left for dead. They didn't throw rocks. Remember when you were a kid? I remember like, when I was in like, the fifth grade. And we used to get in fights. We'd punch each other in the arm because you were afraid to actually maybe hurt somebody. I remember the first time I got punched in the face in a fight, you know, in school. And I was like, whoa. Whoa, this is real. This is for keeps. Listen, when you are trying to kill someone, you throw rocks at their head. And this is Paul, and now he's coming through, and he's saying, listen, guys, this is for keeps. And here's what happens, is that when you can continue on a path and in a life that has taken from you the things that people value and would say that you should defend. And then you can say it is of higher value and more honor to me to lay down my life for this life that I've been called into than to try to preserve something that was once dear to me. Then your life begins to preach about a kingdom that has foundations. And Paul is so set free at this point in his life from any of the petty things that would hold someone earthbound that he can preach while he's bleeding because he doesn't care what happens to him because he's free. It's a next level freedom. It's the kind of freedom that God wants to give to his people where we're not bound by the lesser things of this life but where we're free deeply on the inside A freedom that no one can take from us, no matter what happens, no matter what job we lose or income we forfeit, or no matter what rights are taken or what countries invade other countries. It's a deep freedom. But it begins when we fully surrender our lives to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I give you my life and do in me what you can only do in a human heart and in a human life and make me what I could never make myself. Father, we, just, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for these timeless truths. We ask you, Lord, to continue speaking, continue revealing, keep showing, keep cultivating, keep drawing us ever closer to you. Help us to lean into your kingdom, to trust completely in you and you alone, and to live only for you. Jesus, we want to give you our lives tonight afresh. We want to be reminded, God, that you're worth it, worthy. So evermore, Lord, let your truth make us free. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.